Hello everyone, thank you for joining me for this review of arrhythmias with Dr. Logan Funk, sponsored by Hills. We're so glad we caught up with Dr. Funk. He had just finished his cardiology residency at the University of Missouri and was actually in the middle of packing up for a big move when we talked to him, but he generously agreed to share his knowledge and his time with us anyway. And let me tell you, if you have cardiology questions, Dr. Funk has the answers. He is brilliant and had all of the answers to all of my burning cardiology questions at his fingertips. Dr. Funk grew up in northeastern Wisconsin and attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison for the duration of his undergraduate and veterinary medical studies. He completed an emergency and critical care internship in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as well as a specialty cardiology internship in Los Angeles, California. In July of 2019, Dr. Funk began a cardiology residency at the University of Missouri. He completed the program in July of 2022 and has fulfilled all requirements for diplomate status within the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine Specialty of Cardiology. If you enjoy this episode, you can find more CE from Dr. Funk and others on the Hills website, hillsnorthamerica.com. All right, I'm joined today by Dr. Logan Funk, who just completed his cardiology residency at the University of Missouri. Congratulations, Dr. Funk. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleming. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's so nice to talk to you today. And, um, you know, we did a little a little prep work here and spoke about arrhythmias and um and I called you an encyclopedia of knowledge so I look so forward to bringing that to our listeners oh that's exceptionally generous of you um (laughs) and I will do my best I have full confidence in you um so starting starting with the basics for people like myself when we see or hear an arrhythmia what are some of the considerations that we should keep in mind to help us determine the diagnosis and determine how to act in that situation? Namely, how do I stop the blind panic when I'm like, oh no, what's going on here? Yeah, that's a a great question um, because I think especially when we hear a highly irregular or very slow heart rhythm in a patient that's presenting with overt clinical signs, it is easy to... um, start to jump into that action mode where we're trying to decide what we need to be doing immediately. And really the first step is to do everything we can to make a rhythm diagnosis. That's going to dictate our plan of action. And we can't do that without an electrocardiogram. So even if a rhythm sounds extraordinarily irregular and fast, I can't determine if that's atrial fibrillation or if that's paroxysmal ventricular tachycardia until I actually look at a tracing. So First step is just to place those uh, lead electrodes and get a get a tracing. And whether we're using just an ECG monitor or a multimodal integrated monitor, like in um, the uh, the anesthetic setting or the emergency room, um, we can get the vast majority of what we need from a simple lead to tracing. Um, so that really requires that we only place um, three electrodes on our patient, and then we can get our bipolar leads one, two, and three. And we always use lead two for reference. Um, now, again, if if we have a rhythm that's very irregular, there are a lot of different things showing up on our tracing. It can be very uh, easy for any of us to get overwhelmed. So I always break things down into the basic constituent parts to begin with and ask myself questions like, 
what is the underlying rate? Is the machine giving me a rate that matches with what I'm hearing on auscultation? If I have a printout, I can quickly calculate an average heart rate for things like atrial fibrillation, where the average is more meaningful than just a strict coupling interval. So using a simple tool like a standard BIC pen with the cap on, if I know my paper speed is 25 millimeters per second, I can use that BIC pen, count the number of QRS complexes that occur um, over the course of that BIC pen. And then the mnemonic we use is pen times 10. And that tells me the number of beats per minute. If it's a 50 millimeter per second tracing speed, then I just do it by, by 20. So since the paper speed is double, we double the number we're multiplying by. So that, that's a general area to start. How rapid is our rhythm or how slow is our rhythm? Is it regular or irregular? Do I see P waves on the tracing? If I do, is there a consistent relationship between the P waves and the QRS complexes? And then a big question uh, that we'll want to ask when we're determining how clinically significant or how scary an arrhythmia is, is are the QRS complexes narrow um, and, and do they look similar to our sinus complexes or are we seeing wide and bizarre looking complexes? A more narrow complex um, tells us that likely the rhythm is originating in the supraventricular area of the heart and less likely to be life-threatening versus uh, wide, bizarre-looking complexes, uh, especially with a tachyarrhythmia, are more likely to be coming um, from the ventricles and associated with a risk of sudden death. Now, we can also see wide, bizarre-looking complexes um, that would be associated with a slow heart rhythm, and those would be ventricular escape rhythms. Um, so we would uh, take a different course of action with those rather than something like ventricular tachyarrhythmia or ventricular tachycardia. And then we can have rare instances where there is a wide, bizarre-looking rhythm that still comes from above the AV node, so a supraventricular tachycardia, and that would be a scenario where we have either a sinus or supraventricular rhythm, um, ectopic rhythm that uh, is being conducted with a bundle branch block. And so those will respond to medication differently than um, something like ventricular tachycardia. So just to make sure I'm, I'm hearing you correctly, we're, when we hear that arrhythmia or you know see it under anesthesia, something like that, we're looking for rate. Is there a P for every QRS and a QRS for every P wave? And is it wide and bizarre or is it narrow and more sinus looking to kind of help determine how panicked we should be in that moment? Precisely. Yeah, exactly. And um, certainly um, there may be times with a patient that's presenting in shock uh, or after an anesthetic episode where maybe we encountered significant bleeding or something like that, where we have a true sinus tachycardia that's occurring at a rate of 200 or 250 beats per minute. And I, I think sometimes there is a default to be worried about that number. Um, and while we do want to um, intervene appropriately to bring that number down, it wouldn't be a scenario if it's a sinus tachycardia where we start things like calcium channel blockers or beta blockers. So if, I, if I'm convinced that I just have a sinus tachycardia, first steps will be to uh, make sure that we are appropriately analgesing a patient, make sure that we have appropriate volume status. If I have a narrow complex tachycardia that's 250, 300 beats per minute, and I'm um, not seeing P waves because they're buried in the preceding QRS complex, that's when we'll start to think about a supraventricular tachycardia and then ask the question, uh, in ectopic supraventricular tachycardia rather, and ask the question, do we need to intervene with pharmacotherapy? And part of that equation will be, 
is the patient hemodynamically affected? Um, do they have a change in their blood pressure? Are they exhibiting clinical signs? I'm so glad that we're having this talk because you know there's so many considerations, there's so many variables to keep in mind, and I'm sure all of you listening out there see what I mean about just the amount of knowledge that Dr. Funk brings to the table here um, as far as our considerations and how to respond to this. And you're reminding me of rhythms that we don't see as commonly in private practice. So I'll be honest, sometimes I forget that they're out there like the bundle branch blocks and, um, you know, the just the supraventricular tachycardias and, and some of the considerations that come with that. Fortunately, we don't see a, a ton of shock patients, um, at least speaking for myself, although with how busy veterinary medicine is, you know, we're seeing more and more of this in private practice and, and less ability to refer just because of the patient load. So thank you for giving us such a good review and reminding us of like all these basic considerations that we need to keep in mind for arrhythmias that sometimes just get lost in the shuffle. Oh yeah. And I'm just speaking from direct experience with our ER and our um, surgery services. So, um, reaching back to the, the sinus tachycardias that might be a little bit more rapid. Um, part of why we always, um, initially try to rule out or exclude is a, is a rapid rhythm sinus in origin is because if it is, I don't want to necessarily give that patient, um, a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker until I've made sure that their volume status is appropriate and that they're analgesed, uh, adequately, um, so that we can really say it's an inappropriate sinus tachycardia, because if it's appropriate for that patient, um, by blocking that physiologic response, we could actually make things worse. So again, just a very common scenario for us to be thinking about in our cardiology services. Have we addressed those things first? If we have a rapid supraventricular narrow complex rhythm where we can see CP waves, and sometimes those can be ectopic too, especially when the rates are, are very high and then we need to take additional steps. Sure. Certainly with our cardiac output being partially dependent on rate, if we don't have the rest of our um, components in line and we drop that heart rate, then if they weren't hemodynamically affected, then they will be. Yes. Yeah, exactly. What are some immediate considerations we should keep in mind? If a patient is presenting and they are completely stable on physical exam and we incidentally detect an arrhythmia, let's say, for example, an eight-year-old boxer dog that's ostensibly healthy and we hear um, a short paroxysm of uh, a rapid tachycardia, um, my top suspicion will be that that dog has arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, um, but that dog is uh, not exhibiting clinical signs, doesn't apparently seem to be hemodynamically affected in that instant. Um, so while it's important for us to investigate and work that up and determine, does the dog need chronic therapy? Um, that's not a scenario where we would be um, just based on hearing that short run of, of a tachycardia, admitting that patient to a hospital and going into to panic necessarily. Conversely, if we have a patient that's coming in to the hospital in hemodynamic collapse, is lateral recumbent, and we hear a really rapid rhythm put on our ECG leads and on our lead two tracing, we have a wide complex tachycardia at a fixed rate of 250 beats per minute or 300 beats per minute, my initial differential until proven otherwise is going to be ventricular tachycardia. So I'm going to be reaching immediately for a dose of lidocaine to try to break that rhythm because that 
is um, a rhythm that could devolve into something electrically more unstable, um, like ventricular fibrillation, which of course is an arrest rhythm. So we would drop a two milligram per kilogram dose of lidocaine for that patient, administer it. And if we don't break the rhythm, I would give another dose and we can go up to eight migs per keg sequentially. Um, so in repeated two mig per keg doses for that patient uh, before we need to take a break. And if I, if I successfully convert that, dog um, to a sinus rhythm after giving a bolus of lidocaine, then I'm going to be thinking about how I'm going to keep them in sinus rhythm. So likely starting them on a lidocaine CRI for monitoring in the hospital before we um, convert to oral therapy with Sotolol oftentimes being a first line for us. If they don't convert, even after giving several sequential doses of lidocaine on our end for the cardiology department, there might be other drugs that will think about or select if we're really convinced that this is a ventricular tachycardia. The other thing I might start to ask myself is, could this be a wide complex tachycardia that's actually supraventricular in origin, but conducted with a bundle branch block? We do a couple of times a year, I'll say, um, encounter dogs with atrial fibrillation and a bundle branch block, whether it's left or right. And those can be really tricky cases when the AFib is occurring at a rate of 300 beats per minute. The irregularity of the rhythm is less easy to discern on an ECG, but sometimes we can do something like a vagal maneuver, applying ocular pressure or carotid massage to slow down uh, or limit conduction through the AV node, create more gaps between QRS complexes, and that can unmask some of that irregularity that then tells us, oh, this is indeed atrial fibrillation with a bundle branch block, and we need to be thinking about a calcium channel blocker to slow down the rate rather than lidocaine. I love that you brought up lidocaine and vagal maneuver. Let's dive into those a little bit more. Um, remind us the, our techniques as far as um, you know, ocular pressure, carotid massage to slow that down. And then also, if we can talk even a little bit more about lidocaine, you said two megs per kg. We can give it in sequential doses up to eight megs per kg. Um, how are we giving that? Is that a is that a slow push? Is that um, is that something we need to do even slower? Can we rapidly bolus that? And how long in between boluses? Like, what are some of those those things we need to make sure we're keeping in mind with lidocaine? Sure, it, it should be a gradual push. It doesn't need to be excruciatingly slow, but but just a gradual push. And then I usually wait uh, a minute or two after bolusing to see if there is is any effect on the rhythm. So. Um, I, I'm not necessarily drawing up the second dose immediately. I want to give them a chance to respond, but we don't have to wait an extraordinarily long time if we're not really seeing any change uh, in something like a ventricular tachycardia. The dose indeed is two mg per kg for dogs, IV, um, and we can repeat that up to four times for a total dose of eight mg per kg. Um, lidocaine is a medication that's rapidly metabolized. So if you give um, eight migs per kg uh, in uh, short order and the dog ultimately converts, um, but then reverts back to having ventricular tachycardia two hours later, we can repeat that sequence of bolusing again. That lidocaine should by and large be metabolized at that point. And if we are going up to those eight mig per kg total doses in short order, um, I would be cognizant of signs uh, related to GI upset and certainly neurologic signs. So watching for those things. Sometimes when we put our patients on a high rate uh, lidocaine infusion, 
Um, we preemptively give them meropitin because some of them will become uh, a bit nauseous. Although if that's the case, then I also generally want to titrate them back on their dose if I can. Um, we're always giving it uh, intravenously. In cats, we also give it intravenously, but our, our doses are significantly lower. So 0.25 to 0.5 megs per kg. If we give a cat a two meg per kg bolus, then we have a much greater risk of neurologic toxicity. Can we, I know that was a super long question. I added like five different pieces to it. I was like, can you talk about all these things? Can we circle back around to the the vagal maneuvers and how, how long do we give it with ocular pressure, carotid massage, or what are some of the things we need to keep in mind with that one? Yeah. So if we're doing a vagal maneuver to either try to break a supraventricular tachycardia. Um, so in some instances, we can actually induce an instance of second degree AV block for a patient that's having uh, supraventricular tachycardia, and that gives them a chance to maybe revert back to sinus rhythm, or it, it just blocks the, the supraventricular tachycardia in a way that lets us get a better idea of what exactly is going on from a diagnostic side as well. We can either induce that type of block, or as I said before, in cases of atrial fibrillation, especially when there's a bundle branch block and we're trying to figure out what is the true nature of this wide complex tachycardia by decreasing the number of impulses that are traversing the AV node in a patient with that atrial fibrillation, we start to unmask more of the irregularity in the rhythm and see that it is indeed something that's coming from above the AV node and rely on the, on the AV node to conduct to the ventricles and is just doing that with a block rather than a rhythm that's truly coming from the ventricles as the point of origin. The way that we do a vagal maneuver in a dog or a cat would be to apply gentle but firm pressure either to the eyes or the carotid region or both simultaneously. And not all patients will respond positively, um, but I'm generally going to do that for 30 seconds or more to try to get a sense of if I can break the rhythm or not, or at least slow down or decrease the amount of AV nodal conduction to slow down the overall ventricular response rate like an atrial fibrillation. Awesome. Thank you so much for reviewing all of that because it's one of those where like, you know, pressure on the eyes will slow the heart rate, but you know exactly what you're looking for and when to use those types of techniques. Again, I think is one of those things that at least for me gets a little bit lost. So I really appreciate the review. Oh yeah. And it's something that we have to remind ourselves sometimes too, but uh, when it does work, it's very rewarding and exciting actually. So absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of these common or more common arrhythmias that we might see in practice. For example, we've kind of touched on an AV block a couple of times. Can you talk to us about what those arrhythmias would look like and what sort of actions we should take when we see them? Sure. Yeah. So moving away from the tachyarrhythmias, which I think would be kind of the most initial panic types of rhythms to see and sort out. If we have a dog that's coming in with an unexpectedly low heart rate, let's say it's a 12 year old Labrador that is wagging their tail in the hospital, panting pretty hard, but their heart rate is only 50 beats per minute. When we apply an ECG, uh, we might find that they have atrioventricular block. And there are of course, three different levels or degrees of AV block. First degree AV block, just simply being a prolongation of time for conduction across the AV node. And that's manifest on the ECG as just a long PR interval. But what we worry about clinically and where we need to intervene really would be with high grade second degree AV block. So um, in that scenario, we would see 
some sinus beats conducted uh, with uh, an expected or maybe prolonged PR interval, but there does seem to be times when a P wave is followed in kind of normal succession by a QRS complex that's narrow. Um, but other instances in which we have a P wave that is not followed by a QRS complex, it may either be followed by multiple P waves in a row, or it might just be a single P wave and then the next P wave conducts to a QRS or we might have several P waves in a row with an intervening wide bizarre QRS complex, and that would be a ventricular escape beat. So um, in dogs that are having high grade second degree AV block or cats for that matter, we would see multiple P waves in a row um, before uh, eventually getting back to a sinus rhythm that's being conducted across the AV node. And those dogs could absolutely experience uh, syncope because they're not able to physiologically increase their heart rate um, in response to activity or the demands of exercise. The other scenario, of course, would be third degree AV block or complete AV dissociation where none of the signals that are being generated by the sinus node are able to conduct to the ventricles. And so the subsidiary pacemakers uh, in the ventricles have to take over ventricular pacing for themselves. Otherwise, we would have ventricular asystole. So in that scenario, we would see two distinct rhythms on our ECG tracing. We would have likely a sinus rhythm that, that may or may not be regular. There can still be vagal influence that would create some difference in the P to P interval over time, but would be at likely an expected rate of between 80 and 160 for a dog for just for the sinus rate, the P to P rate. Um, and then we would have a separate rhythm that would be the ventricular escape rhythm. So that would be wide bizarre complexes happening at a very regular interval between 30 and 60 beats per minute. If we uh, do diagnose either of those rhythms, those patients uh, are at risk of sudden death, maybe not in that moment, but there is a risk that their subsidiary pacemakers can fail at some point and they can develop uh, ventricular asystole, um, or what oftentimes seems to happen is their ventricular rate slows down until eventually they develop uh, multiform ventricular tachycardia or torsades. Um, and then ventricular fibrillation. So uh, the recommendation is to always refer those patients as expeditiously as possible to a facility that has a cardiologist uh, that would be capable of um, pace, placing a pacemaker to take over the heart rhythm for that patient. And we've talked earlier about identifying arrhythmias in tacky versus brady. This, of course, being a brady arrhythmia despite the fact that we may periodically be seeing these wide and bizarre complexes, this is one scenario where we would want to stay far, far away from the lidocaine. Yes. And, and the other thing that can happen in patients with sec high grade second degree or third degree AV block is we may intermittently have an accelerated idioventricular rhythm. So that would be a wide complex rhythm that happens at a somewhat faster rate, 120, maybe up to 160 beats per minute, but it's not ventricular tachycardia and that won't respond to lidocaine. The fortunate thing for the patient in that scenario is the, the AIVR, accelerated idioventricular rhythm, is not a life-threatening arrhythmia, and it may be giving them better cardiac output than their, um, their basal escape rhythm otherwise would be. The fear with giving lidocaine um, or beta blockers or calcium channel blockers to a patient that's having 
very slow wide bizarre complexes from a ventricular escape rhythm is that we could um, terminate or disrupt that escape rhythm and cause them to have, again, ventricular asystole. So um, until we have an option for artificial pacing, we do uh, try to stay away from those, uh, those things. And um, the most important thing is to get them in a facility where they can have 24-hour ECG monitoring until a plan can be formulated to get a pacemaker. And then sometimes that's uh, more urgent uh, than others. So there may be an option for a dog with a um, escape rate of 60 beats per minute. That's uh, very reliable to wait and get a pacemaker the next day. We know that complication rates are lower um, when we uh, do a procedure of that type with all of our normal staffing during uh, typical daytime hours versus if we do it after hours with kind of more of a skeleton crew, even, even though everybody, of course, is very skilled in what they're doing, the complication rates just go up. But uh, there are other times where we don't have the option and we have to intervene uh, more urgently. But that would be, again, a scenario where pharmacotherapy really isn't going to help us and we just need to get them uh, to a, a facility um, or a hospital where somebody can place the artificial pacemaker and take over the pacing function. Let's talk about a couple other arrhythmias. You know, one that I have listed here is a ventricular escape rhythm, which I feel like you talked about a good bit with the AV block. Anything else you want to say about ventricular escape rhythm? The the other uh, major scenario where we might encounter a ventricular escape rhythm, um, rather than just maybe an intermittent occurrence in a dog that's um, sound asleep. So in, in, in general practice or ER, that's probably not something we'll see, but we see it uh, commonly on our Holter monitors or our um, 24-hour telemetry in hospital. But the other scenario where you might have a, a dog or a cat come in that is symptomatic for a bradyarrhythmia and you just see a ventricular escape rhythm would be um, atrial standstill. So uh, in that setting, uh, we would not see any P waves whatsoever in our ECG. Um, so again, with third degree AV block, and, and I find that sometimes this becomes a point of confusion, maybe a little bit, and, and it's for the purposes of how we intervene, it maybe sounds a little bit arbitrary, but with third degree AV block, we still see P waves marching along across our tracing, and they're interrupted by these wide bizarre complexes that represent the escape rhythm. In atrial standstill, there are no P waves anywhere on the tracing ever. It's just the wide bizarre complexes that represent uh, the ventricular escape rhythm. In dogs in particular, there is um, a phenomenon called atrial cardiomyopathy where their atrial uh, cardiomyocytes are replaced by fibrous tissue and they lose the ability to conduct impulses in their atria. So that would be a potential cause of atrial standstill. But we also always consider causes of transient atrial standstill. And uh, the most notable of those would be hyperkalemia. So something that we can quickly screen for um, in, a, in a clinical setting. And in cats, uh, if we do have a hyperkalemia, then of course we're asking, um, is there a potential that this patient has, for example, a urinary obstruction in dogs, we might be thinking more about Addison's disease. Um, but when we correct the electrolyte imbalance, we should also restore a normal sinus rhythm in that patient. Um, so if a, if a dog has a totally normal uh, potassium, a normal electrolyte panel, then we might deviate more towards thinking about atrial cardiomyopathy and say, this dog needs to get a pacemaker. But of course, we don't want to put a pacemaker in a, in a dog or a cat if we can simply correct an electrolyte imbalance um, and get them back to feeling normal. 
if a dog or cat does present with clinical signs of a bradyarrhythmia and ultimately on an ECG you diagnose second or third degree AV block, um, it is important to get a detailed history from the owner, including potential toxin exposures. Now, the, the team who goes on to place the pacemaker should be asking all of the same questions, but really finding out, is there uh, any possibility that the animal would have ingested a plant like uh, Lily of the Valley, Oleander, Foxglove. Does anybody in the household take heart medications, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers that an animal could have gained access to? Um, because again, we might need to think about temporarily pacing that patient or um, starting uh, uh, interventions to reverse uh, a drug toxicity if one occurred. Um, but uh, that patient might not require a permanent pacemaker if they were exposed to uh, one of those agents. And um, we have had a patient uh, at our hospital, it was, it was before uh, my time um, in residency here, but uh, a dog that um, was a repeat offender with ingesting, um, uh, I believe it was oleander um, that was in the client's backyard and so would present in third degree AV block um, after having ingested that plant. No kidding. No kidding. Good history questions to follow up on. Um, refreshing our, our cardiology knowledge here and then also back to toxicology and toxic plants because, you know, again, just not something you see all the time and so sometimes it, you, like here in Florida we think like sago palms all right we know what sago palms do many of us know what lilies do but um for me of course I remember oleander is toxic but having to remember like what exactly it does uh so all excellent history questions to bring back to top of mind and make sure we're aware of if we are seeing these arrhythmias in practice Definitely. Yeah. And like I said, too, hopefully the, the cardiology team that you refer the patient on to is also asking those same questions, but it can re really be important to determine what is the best course of intervention for that patient, obviously. Is there a predisposing factor for this atrial cardiomyopathy? Uh, is there something that, that causes it to happen or is it just these unlucky pups? Um, so it, it is something that um, has been identified more frequently um, in specific breeds. We've we've had other patients that are outside of those breeds where we uh, have diagnosed atrial standstill and needed to place pacemakers. So it is something uh, that uh, could affect potentially any dog, but there are, there are definitely uh, patients that might be more uh, predisposed. So. Uh, English Springer Spaniels um, and Old English Sheepdogs have been reported. Okay, interesting. Um, couple other arrhythmias I want to make sure that we talk about. Uh, what about a wandering pacemaker? Um, so a wandering pacemaker is something that would be represented by uh, fluctuations in the amplitude of the P wave on an ECG tracing. So um, the P wave will simply be uh, shorter and taller um, at variable intervals. And it's really uh, determined by prevailing autonomic tone. So we think of vagal tone being the major determinant of cardiac um, function and rhythm uh, at rest in dogs. And uh, it doesn't really have any major significance other than to tell us that the, the patient has high resting vagal tone. So if, if we're looking at uh, depolarization of the atrial myocardium, um, we would be able to explain uh, the wandering atrial pacemaker by the 
path of conduction that an impulse takes out of the sinoatrial node, but it's not something that we need to worry about or intervene. So if we are seeing P waves, but sometimes they're harder to see than others, or the P waves getting really short, that would again be a wandering atrial pacemaker, but not something that uh, would make me um, panicked or concerned by any means. Okay, thank you for reviewing that. I remember seeing a couple of those when I was in vet school. And then as we were kind of doing our prep work for this podcast, I was like, what do those look like again? Yeah, absolutely. What about sick sinus syndrome? Sick sinus syndrome, uh, as the the name implies, really uh, describes the occurrence of clinical signs in dogs that have sinoatrial node dysfunction. So if we have a patient um, and we perform an ECG and happen to see maybe some signifiers of sinoatrial node dysfunction, but that patient is clinically unaffected, um, then we'll probably say that they have uh, sinus node dysfunction or maybe chronotropic insufficiency would be the relevant terms. But if a dog like uh, an older Westie dog uh, is coming in and they're having syncopal episodes and we see on an ECG tracing that they're having unexpected periods of sinus pause or sinus arrest, um, then we'll be suspicious that they have sick sinus syndrome. At times, it can be a little bit challenging to confirm definitively. We, we use things like a Holter monitor and atropine response test to help us do that. Um, so for example, if, if we had an index of suspicion in an individual patient, um, we would administer atropine either IV um, or uh, by another parental route um, and observe uh, an ECG tracing after giving that drug. Um, And if their uh, sinus rate increases uh, appropriately and the rhythm becomes more regular, then it's less likely that they have sick sinus syndrome. If we continue to see a slow heart rate of 100 beats per minute or less, just for example, those aren't strict numbers, but, um, and their rhythm stays irregular with basically no change after administering the atropine, then uh, that would help us to say that this patient likely has sick sinus syndrome as a cause for their clinical signs, and they they probably need to have a, a pacemaker placed. If a dog is presenting for syncopal episodes and is having an unexpectedly slow heart rhythm in the clinic, especially for their demeanor and an irregular rhythm. And when you do your ECG, it just looks like a sinus arrhythmia. That, that I think would warrant referral to a cardiologist to look into the possibility of sick sinus syndrome. So you've already excluded second or third degree AV block um, by doing that ECG, um, or, or at least they're not having frequent high-grade second-degree AV block if you're not seeing any evidence of that on your tracing. But the pauses in their sinus rhythm um, might be uh, enough, especially if they're happening at unexpected intervals, um, to cause the patient to have their clinical signs when they try to exercise or get excited or something like that. Clinical signs being exercise intolerance, syncope, that type of thing? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Any tips? I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm trying to picture myself in practice looking at this patient and I hear an abnormally slow heart rate. I put an ECG on and I see what looks like a slow sinus arrhythmia. Uh, at that point, does it make sense to refer? Am I really kind of correlating that with clinical signs? You know, I'd hate to send you guys a, a, you know, a bunch of patients that just have a sinus arrhythmia 
is there anything to kind of cue me in as far as like this would be the sick sinus patient and this is just this truly is a sinus arrhythmia? Yeah. So if there is some cyclicity to the arrhythmia, for example, if the um, sinus rate seems to speed up as the patient's breathing in and then slow down as they breathe out with a maximum pause at end expiration, then that would fit with a respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And that patient might just have high resting vagal tone. If the pauses in the rhythm seem very unexpected. So let's say for a sequence of um, four or five beats, we have a pretty fixed regular R to R interval for our QRS complexes. Um, and then all of a sudden there's a protracted pause and then it kind of resumes with a fair degree of regularity and the patient is just sitting on the, the table panting and looking very stressed. Then that would make me think that um, uh, sinus node dysfunction is certainly a possibility. The other scenario where we would want to know about sinus node dysfunction, even without um, the occurrence of clinical signs, would be if we have any reason to sedate or anesthetize um, that patient. Um, so if we're anticipating a dental procedure, I, I would probably give a cardiologist a call and ask them if they're willing to look at some tracings and see if they agree. And if they say, eh, I think that this is just a sinus uh, arrhythmia, fine. Uh, if they're worried about sinus node dysfunction, uh, then they might uh, recommend referral to do something like an atropine response test, um, as well as uh, a more detailed workup of the patient's cardiovascular status. Part of what we're trying to determine is if a patient has a sinus arrhythmia that's non-pathologic, but simply isn't strictly a respiratory sinus arrhythmia, um, they should be able to respond well to atropine um, or glycopyrrolate when they're under anesthesia. So we can intervene if their heart rate is, is too slow while they're receiving a, an inhalant anesthetic. A patient with sinus node dysfunction may not, and so they would not be a good candidate to undergo an elective procedure. If for some reason we do need to go ahead with a, either a surgery or let's say they have a dental abscess that we need to address, then we might recommend doing that with temporary pacing in place so that we can control the heart rhythm during a procedure. And so that would be done at a, a facility that has a cardiologist to do that. Perfect. Perfect. So like so many things, um, I would say everything in, in medicine and uh, in veterinary medicine specifically is looking at the whole patient. Exactly. Yeah. And, and there will inevitably be some gray area. And, and I think we've highlighted that a bit. So again, our, our wide complex tachycardias, the reason we use that term is because Sometimes they're ventricular, sometimes they're not. Uh, sick sinus syndrome, we refer to that as a syndrome because it's not always immediately apparent just based on ECG characteristics right away that a patient has that sinus node dysfunction. And so we need to take additional steps. So when something isn't clear cut, that would be a great time to reach out to uh, a specialist to have another set of eyes, take a look at an ECG tracing, hear the history of the patient, and uh, give some collaborative input on what, what might be going on and what best uh, next steps would be. Perfect. Well, Logan, Dr. Funk, this has been fantastic. I've learned a lot just in our short conversation here. I feel like I could sit here for another hour and ask you all my cardiology questions because your answers are so thorough um, and really practical to go ahead and bring back to, to our patients and make sure that we are, we're remembering these different arrhythmias and we're working them up correctly and, and referring when, when we need to. So 
Thank you so much for all of this information. Are there any final thoughts you want to share with everybody? I, I would just say that um, ECGs can be challenging. And if, if they do feel daunting to you, you're not alone. Um, but as we said at the, the beginning of our talk, if we kind of break things down into uh, the simplest components of the ECG, we can get a ton of information without feeling overwhelmed. And um, there are times even within our cardiology department where things aren't clear. So if you, if you are feeling lost, it's never wrong to, to reach out to a colleague for some assistance and help. And, and that may include um, obviously a cardiologist or another specialist. Um, and we're always very, very happy to, to collaborate and find the right answer for a patient. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining me on the podcast. This has been great. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Dr. Funk, that was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your time and your expertise with us. I want to say a big thank you to Hills for sponsoring this episode. And of course, thank you to all of you for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. <laughs>